a failed bank robbery attempt turns into an eight-person hostage situation. Will the police rescue the hostages in time? The author, Friedrich Backman. The book, Anxious People. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit. society no i love it (laughs) um the week went fine i have a week off from work this week for the first time in i think a year and a half since covid well that is a week that makes sense that makes sense yeah uh so i am just ecstatic can i tell you i'm gonna juice this week pipe it down a little bit no i'm hyped I'm going to run six miles every day, juice this week, clean my house. You know, those pesky baseboards. I'm going to get on my hands and knees and dust them and scrub them and have a great old time. Um, So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this week. Uh, What about you? How's it going? What's new? Tell me everything. Tell you everything. What can I tell you? Um, Give me a second. Usually I like to uh, write down what I, I want to talk about because, you know, my memory isn't the greatest. I do the same to... thing. No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I finally decided to um, get a, um, what do you call it? Blender. A oh, blender. okay, 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 cool. The um, Vitamix blender. Look at you trying they to be like me. Sale. They were on sale, so I, I decided to make the investment. At Target? Um, no, I got mines from Costco. Oh, okay, okay. Which is pretty cool. So that should deliver in a couple of days. And then I also um um bought myself a new wig, so I can't wait hey, to try that out. Fun hair. Yeah, well, I you're... need to wash them. Okay, okay. Yeah, I love your versatility. Um, you'll have like your natural hair popping, then you know, <laughs> you will slip in somebody else's hair, then you put on somebody <laughs> else's hair. It's fun. I like it. I love it, you too. Do it's thing. so fun. Yeah. You know, hair is hair. I love it. Yeah. It's what we do, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, now it's time for Society Says, where we share your comments, readers, with the rest of our lit society. Kari, is there a comment you thought particularly litty? There is, there is. And this comes from Apple Podcasts, a five-star review. We love when you give those to us, you guys. Love. (laughs) And this is from Always SJ. And they say, the book pod you've been looking for. Over the past year, I've started reading more, but have no one in my circle to talk about books with. I've been looking for a while for a podcast to help fill this void and stumbled across Lit Society after reverse searching some titles and I fell in love. Alexis and Kari handle difficult topics with grace and thoughtfulness. They're also never afraid to call out when a book is just bad or problematic. See the Nancy Drew episode, LOL, and are just funny people. So glad I found these ladies. Thank you, always, SJ. (laughs) We are happy you found us, too. (laughs) We are, indeed. Oh, my goodness. Tell your friends. 
Yeah, thank you. So what about you, Alexis? Is there a comment you found particularly lit? Uh, Yes, I did. This comment is from Instagram and it is from Gaz Carr. They said the podcast was lovely to listen to on my walk this morning. UK based and great podcast. Thank you. Hey, hello, UK from Chicago. Oh, don't hold her accountable, y'all. Don't do it. Don't hold her accountable. My accents be top notch. Y'all know y'all love it. Stable. Did y'all like that last week? Uh, Listen to 1984 for my latest accent. Mm, Offensive. If you could describe this podcast in one word. Offensive. I love that. But it's fun to do accents, right? (laughs) Or to try really It's also hard. problematic. We know, guys. We're just having fun over here. It's fine. We are just having fun, but it was fun. Anyway, <laughs> readers, remember to have your comments shared. Message us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, maybe, or, and we especially love this one, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yes. Each week, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book we are reading. This week's theme is Stockholm Syndrome and its origin. I love this because I I hate true crime because there's like crime involved and someone's sad. But Stockholm Syndrome is great because everyone's really happy when you think about it. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) When did you first hear about Stockholm Syndrome? I was watching some documentary about uh, where the name comes from and the first girl to get it and then it was talking about other people who like and not everyone is falling in love with their captors because they have parent issues or whatever some captors are just cool and like (laughs) (laughs) some people be stuck in a room with them and be like man if you wasn't holding me at gunpoint we would kick it and then the (laughs) captor be like i know right you're like really cool they don't put the gun down but then they be like yeah you're really cool too and then sometimes they should start being friends Wow. Okay. Well, Stockholm Syndrome describes the psychological condition of a victim who identifies with and empathizes with their captor or abuser and their goals. Stockholm Syndrome is rare, according to one FBI study. The condition occurs in about 8% of hostage victims. Let's talk about the origins. On April, excuse me, August 23rd, 1973, I think his name is Jan Eric. Olson took four bank employees, three women and one man hostage at the credit bank in Stockholm, Sweden. Olson had intended to rob the bank at gunpoint, but it turned into a six day standoff. He walks into the bank like a regular customer, kind of with a jacket over his arm. But underneath the jacket was a loaded submachine gun. Olson fired at the ceiling, disguising his voice to sound like an American and yelled out in English, the party has begun. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I like him already. <laughs> I don't lie to you. No one got hurt, right? Olsen wounded a policeman who oh, responded well, to a you. silent alarm. That was an alarm. accident. That was an yeah. accident. Olsen was on a furlough from his three-year sentence for grand larceny. He's oh. a, a known <laughs> safe cracker. So, oh. I mean... I guess they'd given furloughs and, you know, he had a little brief vacation. He decided he didn't want to go back. (laughs) He wanted to get his money. Well, after he took four hostages, he made some demands. He wanted $700,000, a getaway car, and the release of his imprisoned colleague. Um, I think his name is Clark 
Olafsson. Free Olafsson. <laughs> Within hours. Within hours. And I think they said four hours. The police delivered Olafsson, his fellow convict, the ransom and even a blue Ford Mustang with a full tank of gas. Sweden don't know what to do with crime. (laughs) That's fine. But they wouldn't allow the robbers to leave with the hostages, and that's what led to the six-day standoff. During the standoff, Olsen um, showed concern for his hostages. He gave one a wool jacket when she was shivering. He soothed her when she had a bad dream. He gave her a bullet from his gun as a keepsake. <laughs> another one, he consoled after another. Um, he consoled another captive when she couldn't reach her family by phone. And he told her, don't give up. Keep trying. <laughs> another captive complained about being claustrophobic. And Olsen allowed her to walk outside the vault because they were in a bank vault attached to a 30-foot rope. By the second day, they were all on the first-name basis and started to fear the police more than the captors. They thought the police was going to kill them. At one point, the, comp- the police commissioner came in. He was allowed to check out the hostages, um, their health, and he noticed that the captors were more hostile to him <laughs> but relaxed and jovial to the gunmen. He knocked on the door. They was like, who it is? <laughs> it's the police. Okay, and... Um, can we come in? Did you have a warrant? <laughs> and mind you, they're in the bank vault, okay? In a bank vault. Okay. So at another point, the hostage um the um captors were threatening to shoot the male hostage in the lake, you know, to kind of shake up the police. And he thought the male hostage thought, how kind of him to just shoot me in the leg. Another hostage said, it's just a leg. The Mm. male hostage said when Olsen treated them well, they could think of him as an emergency god. I'm sorry, what? An emergency god. I'm sorry, what? Yep. mm -hmm. (laughs) You heard that. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. At one point during the hostage situation, they considered themselves as owing their lives to their Captors. So when did they start testing the lead levels of the water in this part of town? Because <laughs> I already see what the problem is. <laughs> well, the standoff ended with the police drilling a hole into the bank vault and dropping in tear gas. As the captors were led away, two of the women hostages yelled, don't hurt them. They didn't harm us. The public and the police were perplexed by the captors response. Yeah. When the standoff ended, the hostages were taken for treatment at a psychiatric clinic and they were reported to be in shock. And months later, the psychiatrist dubbed the strange phenom Stockholm Syndrome. So wait, go back to the shooting in the leg. I didn't quite understand that part. Well, they threatened to shoot the male hostage in the leg because, um, you know, they needed to shake up. The police, they needed to, they want to go. I am sorry. I am sorry. I think I misunderstood. So the man who took the hostages, they brought his friend from jail and took the friend to him. So then there were two people. (laughs) So so they added a perpetrator to the crime scene? Yes. Is what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Listen, Swedish people are just kind. 
They, they're not up against what we up against here in America where we got mass shootings every day. These are people where, you know, most of their check go to the government, but that means free health care, free uh, higher education. You know, they live in like little pods with their families and whatnot. They, they didn't know what to do. So he said, free my homie. And they was like, great. But then they brought, they said, we're going to do you better. You asked us for one, we're going to give you two. And they brought the homie to the bank. <laughs> That's right. That's what happened. That's what happened. And then the homie thought that he would shoot one of the hostages in the leg for what? Well, it didn't specify um, oh, which okay, one okay. made the threat, but the threat was made. And he, they again, they wanted to shake up the police because, you know, they wanted to go. They had all the stuff. They requested oh, the money they trying the to get out. And they, they was like, how wanted, can we? Okay. Yeah. And they wanted the hostages to come with them to protect themselves. You know, I'm sure they would have oh, let the hostages off I thought they was else. all having such a great time. They was like, listen, we can take this almost a million dollars by an island somewhere and kick it forever. And then somebody was like, okay, got you. They said, you can't take them hostages with you. We won't let you do that. And they was like, why? They want to go. That's right. (laughs) This is wild. And that's it. They did say that. Why can't we just go with them? (laughs) Yes, it was just like that. Honestly. So that was the first case, right? But the most famous case of um, Stockholm Syndrome is that of Is when Daniel Kalua was like fighting for um, Killmonger. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. No. I'm All just right. digging through history. I'm just digging uh-huh. through history. Yeah. Okay. So I first learned about Stockholm Syndrome watching this movie about Patty Hearst, her kidnapping. Um, her case, again, is one of the most famous. It's the most famous. Patty Hearst was, at the time, 19-year-old. She's a daughter of a newspaper um, publisher. And it all comes back to Citizen Kane, which comes back to George Orwell, which means <laughs> you should listen to 1984 last week's episode. Okay, go ahead. Now I'm familiar with hers. Okay. She was um, kidnapped from her apartment by two black men and a white woman. They were armed. They beat up her fiance, tied him up along with a neighbor who tried to help. And she was thrown into the trunk of a car. Well, three days later, the Sibonese Liberation Army, I'll call them SLA. They're a small U.S. leftist group. They announced that they were holding Patty as a prisoner of war, and they demanded that the Hearst family give $70 in foodstuffs to every needy person from Santa Rosa to Los Angeles, and then they would negotiate the return of Patty. Well, the family did what they said. They, they, they gave them that. They gave the foodstuffs. Well, then the SLA said, you know what? That's inadequate. We want $4 million now. So by April that same year, a tape was sent to the authorities with Patty's voice saying that she was joining the SLA of her own free will. And then they caught her on camera, surveillance camera, robbing a San Francisco bank and then a Los Angeles store. No, I'm very familiar with this. Okay. Yeah. So finally, (laughs) on September 18th, 1975, after, you know, crisscrossing the country with her captors or conspirators for more than a year, she was captured, arrested for armed robbery. She would later claim she was brainwashed by SLA and that she had Stockholm Syndrome. Mm -hmm. They didn't believe her and she was sentenced to seven years in prison. 
No, she was sentenced to over almost four decades in prison. Her sentence was commuted by President Jimmy Carter, and she was released in 79. And in 2001, President Bill Clinton gave her a full pardon. So the way I remember it is that because it's a federal crime, she was sentenced to almost 40 years in prison. But then right away, they was like, uh-uh, you rich and privileged. So they was like, how about seven? Does seven work for you? And then uh, Jimmy Carter was like, you know what? This is suspended, which means you ain't even got to go in. You ain't even on parole. And then Bill uh, Clinton, like you said, completely pardoned her. Mm -hmm. And her defense this whole time is that she is not responsible for her actions because she was radicalized. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a wild defense because can't anyone be radicalized by any philosophy, ideology? So aren't all the people in the group radicalized and brainwashed? I don't know. And what y'all brainwashed into? I mean, it's wrong to kidnap people. That's completely wrong. It is. And you can't make people be philanthropists. You just can't. <laughs> but that's essentially what they was doing. They was trying to be like Robin Hood. <laughs> well, as, as yeah, just that and Robin Banks and whatnot. So <laughs> Robin anyway. Hood. It's in the name. Robin and Hoods. <laughs> Stockholm <laughs> Syndrome is not an official mental health diagnosis. And it's not included in the DSM, and that's the book of mental health diagnoses. Um, instead, it's thought to be a coping mechanism. Uh, individuals who are abused or trafficked or who are victims of incest or terror can develop Stockholm Syndrome. But there's, um, they don't feel like there's enough research behind it to actually add it to the, um, to the DSM not just research, but just um, maybe enough cases or I don't think they believe in it so much <laughs> no, when it all boils they down They don't believe it. none of y'all. That's mm -hmm. all. They don't believe in it. <laughs> so then so, if it's not so Stockholm syndrome, what is it? It's a coping mechanism. That's it. That's I mean, it. It's, okay. it's that, but it's just not, it's just how you cope with terror that you, yeah. um, you know, you're, that's your, your fight or flight is you saving yourself. Okay. And so you cope with it in that manner. So that's Stockholm Syndrome and its origins. Kara, you got anything you want to share about it? Uh, Hearst has a book. She wrote about her time with the leftist group. Well, you know who else has a book? Olafson. He wrote a book about called Stockholm Syndrome. Wait a second. <laughs> but... <laughs> but he released Olufsen... it in 2009. Yep. Mm -hmm. Hold on. But Olafson <laughs> is the one that took the, the hostages. Olsen took the hostages. How Olsen he gonna write a book? Oh. was the one that got out of jail. Yeah, he the homie. So he gonna write a book about the condition the hostages face. <laughs> he wrote the book. <sighs> yes, indeed. And it was released so in 2009. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> now, everything we done told y'all is true. true Just true. imagine that true, all true. these people involved we're black. Okay, that's all. <laughs> okay, let's take a quick break before let's we jump into the author and context, okay? Okay, great. Frederick 
Patrick Bachman. Um, and I got really captivated by one of his old books, which is uh, The Man Named Uwe. Um, but this is what I do have about Frederick. He was born in Sweden, where he still resides, June 2nd, 1981. He's a storyteller. He doesn't like the word author because that makes him think of his heroes. He's just a storyteller. Well, the truth is he's like an excellent storyteller because his books do really well. He's also a columnist, blogger, and writer. His most famous work is likely A Man Called Uwe, published in 2012 in Sweden um, and in Swedish, and then in English in 2014. He's uh, been in and out of therapy uh, so there's a part in anxious people where there's a fed up therapist and a narcissistic like patient um, and that he borrowed from his real life sessions with his therapist who's probably <laughs> fed up with him. <laughs> he says, I'm an anxious person, but actually there's good reason for all of this. For example, in the aughts, he was shot in the leg during a robbery and mm. instantly became scared of everything, which is very mm. relatable. Okay. One anecdote about his life that I enjoyed is um, so a man called Uve. This book published originally in 2012 in Swedish um, is made into a movie, an award winning film. Um, I, I remember hearing about this. You movie. do? Yeah. Well, Tom Hanks was supposed to star in the American version that was slated for release this year, 2021. So who knows where that is because of COVID. Um, but the Swedish version is out there and he was invited to the Oscars, but they only gave him one ticket, which is like crass. Uh, the Oscars? The Oscars. One, one ticket? Come on. Yeah, like y'all got it. Get this man two tickets. And he was like, well, I'm not going with my, without my wife. And he's from Sweden. So he like flew to LA. Seriously? Yeah, this is tacky. Oscars do better. So um, they gave him one ticket. He's like, I'm not going without my wife, but I know she'd go without me. So he sent her with the <laughs> with his crew. And his crew was like, yay, we got the fun one. They didn't want to go with him anyway. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so during the Oscars, you know, his wife got dressed up and went, and he just put on like whatever and went to tour Dodgers Stadium. <laughs> oh, cool. And he was like, it was great because he was with a bunch of old men who had no idea the Oscars were even going on. And so that says a little bit about him and his quirkiness. I really like this guy, Frederick Bachman. Um, if he's done something problematic, please don't send it to me, you guys. Um, so, so that's it. Did you have anything about Frederick? Uh, I um, watched a little short. Well, it wasn't short. I just watched a small amount of it. And he was talking about how he was making a living before he um, became... What did you as, like a novelist, a, a storyteller? Story yeah, yeah. Um, he had given himself a year to make a living off of writing, and so he started writing for magazines and blogging. I think he was blogging before that, and he wrote for free. And he said he was tricking people to thinking that he knew what he was doing, mm -hmm. and then he found out that he could make a living off of being funny and annoying people. So. That's at the story. Do you see so. why he is like my kin? I love this so much. <laughs> yeah, that is all you. I yeah, know. It's, it's all true. You. Okay, well, thanks for sharing that. Let's hear a brief synopsis without spoilers before we jump into our deep dive. Okay, a story about idiots. And in that way, it's a story about all of us because none of us really knows what we're doing. But it's also a story about a bridge. But it's also a story about people and how people need people. 
Actually, this is a crime novel about a bank robber and a room full of terrible hostages who each have something in common. They are desperately human and incredibly anxious. Mm. Alexis, what were your first thoughts of anxious people? Well, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to read a book about um, anxious people, but I didn't look into it. I just went into it with that (laughs) attitude, though. So I was like, ho-hum. Yeah. Kari, what do you think? Who do you think would enjoy reading this book? Um, um, what? So I think you enjoy this book if you like character um, driven novels. This isn't an action book, but its characters are all very fleshed out. Um, their lives and their motivations are all interconnecting stories like that. If that's your cup of tea, you'd love anxious people. Okay, well, thank you, Kari. Are you ready to take this deep dive into anxious people? Fill yes. the spoilers. Yes, I am ready for a spoiler-filled deep dive. We should say that this book, again, talks about uh, self-harm. So trigger warning. It even goes into uh, some character is going to take their life very early in the book. But this is not a towner. And, you know, neither of us is going to have a breakdown during this episode mm-hmm. either. So. <laughs> Uh, So that's that on that. And let's begin. Spoilers, spoilers. Here they come. Part one. You know, before we start, I do want to just read this quote that's at the beginning of the book by Frederick Bachman. He says, this book is dedicated to the voices inside my head, the most remarkable of my friends and to my wife who lives with us. And I love that. So part one, (laughs) let's steal a gun and rob a bank. So um, and this is going to be like more of a discussion, if you don't mind, because it's hard for me to lay out the plot of this book. Um, This book is really about the characters who are in this room at one point of the story. Um, But there's one thing you should know. This is a story about idiots. The book wants to make that clear because it's idiotically difficult to be human. The world is spinning and so are we out of control, pretending we're normal while it's so desperately easy to fail at being grown up. Our story starts with a 39-year-old resident who left home one morning clinging to a pistol and a very bad idea. But there are reasons why we're each the way we are. So you should know that when the bank robber's mom died years ago, she was full of so much gin that they dared not cremate her for fear of an explosion. So this idiot, and we'll call them bank robber, left the house with a pistol and without a plan. They walked up to a teller and asked for 6,500 kroner. That's about $783. But the bank they're trying to rob? Turns out it's a cashless bank. (laughs) They later found themselves fleeing into a home that was being viewed by potential buyers. And that's how this story became a hostage drama. When the officers sent a phone into the apartment to talk down the bank robber, they heard a single shot. They entered the apartment and found themselves trampling through blood. Mm. In the end, however, spoiler alert, all of the hostages were released and the bank robber was never found. It doesn't take a detective mastermind to figure out that one of the hostages must have helped the robber to escape. If the robber did indeed escape. And maybe the robber will die if not found in time. So there's the setup. Part two, house tricks. <clears throat> so 
If I, please explain this. Please go ahead. So back at the police station, a frustrated officer is interviewing one of the hostages, the real estate agent. She seems like a complete doofus and won't stop babbling. How's tricks? So that's the name of her business because everyone wants to know these tricks to sell their house. So she decided house tricks was like the perfect name. And she just is okay. always going. That house makes sense. Tricks. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You get it? House tricks. Uh Uh, She's driving this officer to madness. Is she nervous? He wonders. No, no. She's definitely just an idiot. A babbling idiot, he decides. All she wants to talk about is her real estate business, and she's not at all interested in answering his questions. There are reasons why the real estate agent isn't nervous. And I'll say this throughout my deep dive. There are reasons why, because this book is really about why there are reasons why we're all the way we are. So um, there are reasons why the real estate agent isn't nervous. She's convinced the robber's gun, for example, was a toy. It wasn't. She, <laughs> she's sure she was never in any real danger. She was. The officers <laughs> assure her she was. For the first time, when she realizes the gun was real, she's speechless. The officer... It's to his edge now, his breaking point. But there are reasons why we all are the way we are. So you should know that the officer's mom was a priest and always proud of his career choice. It was the officer's dad who never wanted his son to wear a uniform. It is particularly this thought that adds to the officer's anxiety in this moment. The officer's partner is awkward around him and smothering. They have little in common. The older officer feels the youngest is hurting inside. Um, Having seen the blood on the floor, for example, when they went in after the hostages, it may have conjured up some pain in the young man. The older officer is thinking and the older officer just wants to let the young man know that he cares. But the words can't be found and they slip into like careless irritation with each other. I like that. Careless irritation. Yeah. So the truth is the older officer isn't okay either. The younger and older officer, by the way, if you haven't guessed, are father and son. All of us have had days where we faced seemingly unbearable pain in places that wouldn't show up on an x-ray. We know that if we ever see a stranger standing on a bridge about to jump, We are not too far from being that stranger ourselves. It is for that reason, if ever we come across such a person, we try to save them instinctively. You're a decent person. You wouldn't have just watched. That's why one day a young boy saw a man about to jump off of a bridge and the young man talked to him. The boy's mom was a priest and his dad a policeman. And the boy had a strong sense of empathy for the man. Please don't jump, he yelled. They talked, the man and the boy. The man took half a step back and then he jumped anyway in front of the boy. Ten years later, that boy became an officer. Jack is his name and his father is Jim. So we've given you the backstory of the officers, only two officers involved. Also, there are a million characters in this book. We'll try to narrow it down. (laughs) Jack and Jim are the officers. Jack's the youngest. Jim is his dad. Part three, moral hazard. What's moral hazard, Alexis? Do you know? Um, don't take my silence for not knowing. I, the book tells us. <laughs> yeah, and it's a term we've heard, but just getting the definition off the top of your head can be difficult because it's not naturally in our lexicon. It's a mm. phrase created to pardon the powerful. Mm. 
Yeah. So moral hazard is a lack of incentive to guard against risk where one is protected from its consequences. For example, insurance. That term basically describes how the financial markets work. Um, It's the only thing, by the way, moral hazard connecting the robber, the bank robber. We're going back to the bank robber now and the man who jumped off the bridge 10 years ago. So their stories don't intertwine except the fact that they're both victims of moral hazard. A man's life savings. We're talking about the man who was standing on the bridge. A man's life savings um, was replaced with an overwhelming debt when some bank crashed in New York and the entire global market went tail spinning. Mm. The man gave his money to a bank so they could make, quote unquote, secure investments on his behalf. They should know what's best. He, he thought, I mean, he, they're the bank. Right. <laughs> and they're like advising him. Yeah. Um, you know, give us this and we'll invest it here. OK, you're in debt now because of the crash. We'll borrow this amount. Everyone does it. It's fine. And he's like, OK, I mean, they should know. After the crash, the bl- the bank was like, you shouldn't have given us your money. <laughs> and they blamed the man for trusting them with his money. You should he, not have trusted us. You should not have trusted us. Mm. He, he explained to the bank that he had two children and may lose his home. You've suffered from moral hazard. Zara, the woman who ran the bank, told him when one party in agreement is protected from consequences. The man didn't understand. So she simplified further. It's when two idiots are sitting on a creaking tree branch and the one closest to the tree is holding a saw. You're the idiot who let the bank hold the saw. Mm. And the bank robber's connection to moral hazard? The bank robber was only seven years old the first time this was said. And that may well be a little early to hear something of that nature because it pretty much means life can go all sorts of different ways, but it will probably go wrong. Even seven-year-olds understand that. They also understand that if their mom says she doesn't like making plans or even if she never plans to get drunk, she still ends up getting drunk a little too often for it to be a coincidence. The seven-year-old swore never to start drinking hard liquor and never to become an adult and managed to keep half that promise. And moral hazard? The seven-year-old learned about that just before Christmas Eve the same year when mom kneeled down on the kitchen floor and lurched into a hug that left the seven-year-old's hair peppered with cigarette ash. In a voice shaken by sobs, the seven-year-old's mom said, Please don't be upset with me. Don't shout at me. It wasn't actually my fault. The child didn't understand exactly what that meant, but slowly began to realize that whatever it was, it might have some connection to the fact that the child has spent the past month selling Christmas editions of magazines every day after school and had given all the money to mom so she could buy food for Christmas. The child looked into the mother's eyes. They were shiny with alcohol and tears, intoxication and self-loathing. She wept as she clung to the child. She whispered, you shouldn't have given me the money. That was the closest the woman ever came to asking her child for forgiveness. The bank robber, often thinks about that to this day. Not about how terrible it was, but about how odd it is that you can't hate your mom, that it still doesn't feel like it was her fault. They were evicted from their apartment the following February, and the bank robber swore never to become a parent, and when the bank robber ended up becoming a parent anyway, swore never to become a chaotic parent, the sort who can't cope with being an adult, 
the sort who can't pay bills and has nowhere to live with their kids. Going back to the man who jumped, before he went to the bridge, he wrote the banker, Zara, a letter. Um, And Zara has been carrying that letter unopened in her handbag for 10 years. Then she met the bank robber. Bank robber has two precious children and a loving partner who makes them feel safe and loved. Or at least they did before finding out that the reason their boss was making them work so much overtime was because the boss and their partner were having an affair. That is low down to the next level low down. That right there is low down. And by affair, we mean a long and drawn out, full blown relationship. Yeah. So the boss is telling our bank robber, hey, you got to work late tonight. And then the boss is leaving the office to go be with that employee's partner. This lasted for a while. And, And because of working overtime, they had to realize because of working overtime, you no longer have a job. You no longer have a marriage. And everyone asks you not to make a scene Mm. for the sake of the children. So there are two children involved, a frog and a monkey. (laughs) Those are little nicknames for the kids. (laughs) Um, So, so as to not disturb the frog and the monkey, the bank robber moved out of their house um, and tried to find some other way to make money. So they don't have a house now. They don't have a job. Um, And the, the partner, the cheating partner sent a notice to the bank robber before they became a bank robber. And said, if you don't find sufficient, a sufficient source of income and a place to live, we can't allow you to see the children again. Not alone anyway. Wow. Not not just I'll take care of the children for us, but you can't see them anymore. I mean, come yes. On. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a whole setup. That's just low down. Now the two girls and the partner and the boss live somewhere and the bank robber lives somewhere else because the home was in the name of the liar. The worst thing a divorce does to a person, this book says, isn't that it makes all the time you devoted to the relationship feel wasted, but that it steals all the plans you had for the future. Mm. The bank robber is having trouble finding a job and a place to live and is desperately afraid of losing access to their children. So having no place to go, they spend the night in a storeroom of the house they once lived in. So they go back to the old neighborhood at night. So I also didn't say that the cheating partner also wrote them a note saying, come pick up your stuff. Right. Take it to your house. Come and get your stuff. Uh, All of it. Which means we've already been through your stuff and everything we don't want, we want you to come pick up. Um, So the bank robber, so as to avoid embarrassment in front of their old neighbors, goes to the house at night, but breaks into a neighbor's house to grab some blankets because the bank robber has nowhere to go. And they're kind of like living out of their car. Yeah. Yeah. And so then they break into the storage unit of their old house with these blankets And just stay there Mm because they don't have anywhere to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So they spend one night there and in the bundle of blankets, they find a toy pistol. And then they cry. 
So these are the steps to an idiotic decision. Number one, a letter from an ex saying, get a job and find a place to live or we'll take the kids. Number two, spend all of your savings on a month worth of housing. So that's how housing works. Um, you have to pay upfront. If you don't have a job, if you don't have income, you at least have to have enough savings to afford a month or more worth of living. Find a temp job, which they did, but the temp job won't pay you until one month of work. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Go to the bank for a loan. This is number four. Go to the bank for a loan, but the bank won't loan money to someone with a temp job and no savings. They could lose their job <laughs> tomorrow. Uh, wow. And the bank robber's like, I wouldn't be here if I had a job and savings. Um, and finally, grab a toy pistol and put on a ski mask. Later, it turns out that the pistol is real, you guys, <laughs> and that a floor will be soaked with blood. Back to Zara and the banker. Are you dizzy yet? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Zara is the banker. So back to Zara. She's in therapy, you guys. Zara was the banker that the man who jumped off the bridge went to see that was like, you trusted the bank with the saw, you dummy. And now we're still on the tree and you're down, 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 down. Mm. So anyway, back to Zara. She's in therapy. She wants more sleeping pills, but her doctor's like, I need you to go to therapy before I give you any more drugs. And so she's like, fine, I'll go to therapy. So that's why she goes. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> her therapist is young and intelligent. And Zara tells the therapist, listen, I have cancer. And the therapist is like, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, this the statement elicits sympathy instantly from the psychologist. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say therapist, psychologist. And Zara's like, don't worry, it's fake cancer. What? <laughs> Zara assures her that it's made up cancer. And the psychologist decides right then and there that Zara is not her favorite patient. Mm -hmm. There's a painting on the wall in the psychologist's office. The painting is of a woman. Zara suggests the woman is contemplating taking her own life. The therapist has never heard that answer before. The woman in the picture she imagined, the therapist imagined, was feeling either longing or fear. That's why she painted the picture. The, the psychologist painted that. But Zara noticed something else. The woman in the painting is standing on a bridge. Later, the psychologist recommends, Zara, you need to get a hobby. During their next session, Zara says, I found a hobby. Middle-class apartment viewings. <laughs> it's like going to the zoo. So Zara is really rich and she goes to these viewings of like middle-class condos. Um, what Zara doesn't admit though is that this isn't a hobby. It's an obsession and that she has been doing it not since their last uh, therapy session, but for 10 years. Ten All years. of the apartments she views, by the way, have a balcony with a view of the bridge. Before leaving uh, the office, Zara asks her therapist, do you think there are bad people? What the psychologist doesn't say, nor should she, is that there may be a bridge in her photo because 10 years ago and a week after the dad of two girls at her school jumped, she got the idea to visit the same bridge and take her life. A boy named Jack stopped her. He'd been going back to the bridge every evening for a week. He snatched her down, hitting the back of her head, but she woke up in the hospital alive. She grew up and decided to help other people down off the bridge like that boy helped her. 
So just to make it clear, Jack, who's now an officer, tried to talk a man off the bridge. It did not work. So he stopped. He started going back to that bridge every day for a week. He saw another girl about to jump and he saved this one. And this one's name is Nadia. She's a psychologist for Zara. Ten years later. And he um, before he stopped and he talked to the guy. This time he didn't stop and talk. He just tackled the woman off the bridge. Yeah, right. The little girl, because mm-hmm. she was still in school. Oh, that's right. Um, what the psychologist doesn't know is that in the shadows watching the boy and the girl was Zara shaking with terror. So Zara was there that incident, that incident in the shadows. I can't talk this morning. It's too early. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> when the ambulance came and left, Zara walked up to the scene and picked up the girl's wallet, which was left behind. That's when she found out the girl's name was Nadia. And you guys, this is creepy, but it's not meant to be. Zara has spent 10 years following Nadia's life in secret and Mm. 10 years looking at the bridge from the balcony of apartments because she's scared someone else may jump and it may somehow be her fault. The burdens we carry. The the baggage part four. The hostages (laughs) and their baggage. (laughs) So now that we have sufficient backstory on at least a few main characters, let's discuss what this book is actually about. The hostages and the personal baggage they all carry. I'm going to run through the hostages. You guys don't feel like you have to memorize it. In fact, because you all read the book, you know who I'm talking about. Mm. (laughs) Number number one. Estelle. How old is Estelle, Alexis? Like Like 80 80 something. Yeah. Okay. So she's an 80 year old woman whose husband, Canute, is parking the car and she finds herself in the apartment viewing when the um, bank robber busts in and takes hostages. Um, During their hostage fiasco, she does a few things that you should notice. One, she offers to make everyone something to eat because she's sure the homeowner must have something in the freezer. And second, (laughs) she also finds wine in one of the closets and begins drinking directly from the bottles before (laughs) passing it (laughs) before passing it to other people in the room who aren't pregnant. Pregnant, you say. That's right. Julia and Ro, they're our second set of hostages. They're a young couple looking for a home because Julia is pregnant. Then we have Zara, the wealthy banker who everyone agrees is too rich to be seriously considering an apartment like the one they're viewing. Mm -hmm. Then we have Annalena, who I'll just call Anna, and Roger, a retired couple who spends their days flipping homes. Anna is secretly sick of flipping. She wants to settle down with Roger in a forever home, but he's insistent that they invest wisely and do things like loudly complain about mold or whatever. (laughs) So as to ward off potential buyers. So they go to these viewings and complain about like foundations and like there must be, you know, something really wrong with the piping and they do this loudly so that everyone else will bid low or completely give up on buying the property then they buy it and flip it in his heart roger is afraid of no longer being useful to anyone he's retired his career didn't go the way he wanted his ego was badly bruised when he for years was passed over for promotions and then retired with no qualms from the company they were giving him busy work until his retirement day Mm -hmm. and then when he left they were fine without him and that like hurt his 
pride. Simultaneously throughout his life, his wife's career was taking off and he made sacrifices to help her succeed. And she feels guilty for his insecurity now, which is why we have our last hostage, a rabbit named Leonard. (laughs) (laughs) But we're not going to talk about him just yet. So the group of hostages and the quote unquote gunman, our bank robber, found Leonard with his pants down wearing a rabbit's head in the bathroom. Wow. Weird, right? This is a man. Yeah, very weird. What's going on here? (laughs) This is a a semi-naked man with a rabbit's head sitting in the bathroom when they find him. Well, you guys, Leonard was hired by Anna. (sighs) Roger, Anna's husband, his worst fear is that the rabbit is a potential buyer. (laughs) As soon as he sees him, he's like, oh no, another buyer. Not that this half-naked man wearing a rabbit's head in the room. It's weird. Then he fears that this man in costume has been having an affair with his wife. Once it's it's like the connection is made that Anna and the rabbit know each other, he's like, how long has this been going on? And so Anna starts crying and bawling. And Leonard explains, Anna hired me to poop in the bathroom (laughs) while wearing a rabbit's head. (laughs) Yes, that's right, you guys. He's a disruptor. (laughs) disruptor so Anna hired him to poop in the bathroom while wearing a rabbit's head because one thing a potential buyer can never forget about a home is that you one time found a naked man pooping in the bathroom while wearing a rabbit's head and they definitely won't want to buy it this service is Leonard's most expensive package (laughs) It, it nearly guarantees no one else will bid for the home and that the one who hired his services will surely secure the property apparently Anna has hired the rabbit six times. <laughs> All the while, Roger thought that he, it was his like negotiation skills. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Roger's like, I'm a great negotiator. We keep getting these bids and winning these properties. But all the time, it was Leonard who was like disrupting the scene somehow. Um, This is a fatal blow, though, to Roger's ego. And knowing the truth, his wife has been um, secretly hiring a rabbit man all along. It's just too much to take. (laughs) (laughs) So, So Roger's nose starts to bleed from the stress. Both the rambunctiousness and the stupidity of the hostages becomes too much for the bank robber. The bank robber was standing in the center of the apartment, surrounded by Stockholmers, both figurative and literal. Stockholm is, after all, an expression more than it is a place, both for men like Roger and for most of the rest of us. Just a symbolic word to denote all the irritating people who get in the way of our happiness. People who think they're better than us. Bankers who say no when we apply for a loan, psychologists who ask questions when we only want sleeping pills, old men who steal the apartments we want to renovate, rabbits who steal our wives, everyone who doesn't see us, doesn't understand us, doesn't care about us. Everyone has Stockholmers in their life. Even people from Stockholm have their own Stockholmers. Only to them is people who live in New York or politicians in Brussels or other people from some other place where people seem to think that they're better than the Stockholmers think they are. Everyone inside the apartment had their own complexes, their own demons and anxieties. Roger was wounded. Annalena wanted to go home. Leonard couldn't get his rabbit head off. 
Julia was tired. Ro was worried. Zara was in pain. And Estelle, well, no one really knew what Estelle was yet. Possibly not even Estelle. Sometimes Stockholm can actually be a compliment. A dream of somewhere bigger where we can become someone else. Something that we long for but don't quite dare to do. Everyone in the apartment was wrestling with their own story. Forgive me, the bank robber suddenly said in the silence that had settled upon them. At first it seemed that no one had heard, but they all did, really. Thanks to the thin walls and that wretched open plan layout, the words even reached all the way into the closet, out into the hall, and through the bathroom door. They may not have had much in common, but they all knew what it was like to make a mistake. Sorry, the bank robber said in a weaker voice. And even if none of them replied, that was how it started. The truth about how the bank robber managed to escape from the apartment. The bank robber needed to say those words, and the people who heard them all needed to be allowed to forgive someone. Stockholm can also be a syndrome, of course. So, their baggage. Let's talk about all these people's baggage real, real quick. Mm-mm. Estelle. Canute, her husband, is not parking the car, dear. He's dead. Mm-hmm. This is also the day before New Year's Eve, and they always, Canute and Estelle, watch the fireworks together on New Year's Eve. So this is going to be yet another time when she um, doesn't have him to do that with, and she especially misses him. He was always good at parallel parking. So when she really, really misses him, she pretends he's parking the car. Mm. Also, she once had an affair of the heart with a neighbor. <laughs> so uh, Canute wasn't really a reader. He preferred music. Um, so one of the neighbors in the building was an older man around her age and he really liked books. So they started swapping books. And then one day the man gave her a key to his apartment. But what? she never... I know these fast old people, but she never used it. And they only exchanged books until the day he died a few years later. Julia and Ro, the young couple looking for a home because Julia is pregnant. So Ro is unsure she'll make a good parent. She usually asks her father life's big questions. So she's at this point in her life where she's going to have a baby and she wants her father's advice, but he's in a home now. And she's like on her own and she doesn't feel good enough. But Ro came from a background where because of war, her siblings and her parents had to flee by foot, like through a mountainous area. And her parents, if a plane flew overhead, would tell the children to bunch together and the parents would run in opposite directions. So so if the plane started shooting, they would shoot the moving targets, Mm. which were her parents. But all during this time, as a sort of like rebellious act, to the government that was oppressing them, they would keep their uh, sense of humor. And so they would like, they are like the lowest level of comedy that her family, which is like fart jokes and physical comedy. And they just do that all the time to make each other laugh so that the kids, especially Ro, uh, were instilled with like this sense of whatever happens, you have to laugh. Mm. And that's what uh, Julia likes about Ro and that's them. And then Zara, the wealthy banker who everyone agrees is too rich to be seriously considering an apartment like the one they're viewing. Zara, you guys, is suicidal. Surprise. Or at least she thought she was until a gun was shoved in her face and she suddenly felt the surprising urge not to die. She was shocked. Mm. 
um, <laughs> when the bank robber came in with the gun. And she was like, hmm, I don't want to die. She's also, though, cool as a cucumber because she got a million problems. She can't even bother to process the current situation. So she's <laughs> never, exactly ever nervous. <laughs> and then we have Anna and Roger. They're a retired couple who spend their days flipping homes. Roger is sensitive. He's a man of principle, but with no purpose. Mm. And there's a story here where um, all the women, well, not all the women, it's like three women in a closet just talking during the hostage situation. Because um, they're like walking around the house still and like going out to the patio. Wait, yeah, you're going to talk about <laughs> when she came, the robber came in and she said, get on the floor. No, please go ahead. <laughs> so the robber was like, I need everybody to get down on the floor so I can think. <laughs> they were like, why don't I can't get down on the floor? I'm pregnant. There was like this floor. I'd rather be shot. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and Roger was like, I need what's the plan? What's the plan? Yeah, yeah. What do you, you have doing? a plan? And everyone agrees you're not good at this uh, hostage thing, hostage taking thing. So nobody jumps on the floor when the person with the gun says, "Get on the floor." No. But then they hear a noise like a hand clap. Estelle claps her hand and then they, they all jump on the floor. Yes. So they yes, are indeed you. like kooky. <laughs> they they yes. don't respect gun authority. That's what it is. They have no respect for gun authority. <laughs> so they're like, some of them are smoking. Some of them are like curling up in the closet for like girl chat and during one of these girl chats um Anna because everyone decides that Anna is kind of like overly like stepped over her entire marriage by Roger because Roger is more vocal right. he seems more yeah like like an a-type personality but then Anna's like, no, Roger, um, let me fulfill my whole career and raise our kids while I was on business trips. And then when the kids moved out of the house, I was like, Roger, it's your turn. But he never got promoted again. And when he retired, no one really missed him. And I just want him to feel important again. I love Roger. And he's a sensitive man. And she starts talking about how a politician on the news was saying how all the immigrants need to get out of their country and stop um, sucking up their resources. And that day after they watched that news um, special, they went to the store and a man with a beard asked for their parking spot. And Roger wouldn't move for like 20 minutes mm -hmm. out of principle. And so when you first hear that, you're like, oh, Roger is a bigot. Mm -hmm. And so um, Julia, the pregnant lady, is like, I don't really want to hear this story. And Anne's like, no, you have to hear about my Roger. He wouldn't move for 20 minutes because he was waiting for the man um, with the beard to drive up to their parking spot so he could reserve it for him. And in Roger's mind, he must look to that man with the beard like all the politicians on TV who are saying that uh, immigrants need to get out of their country. And so on principle, he wanted the man to know that there's some like kindness mm -hmm. in the world. And he's not like that. So he's not um, a xenophobe, basically. Um, so I thought that was a great anecdote to show how when you only have part of the situation right. of the story, you can't get the full picture. Um, so um, we're, we're again going to finish out this book, but. In order to really get what it's about, you have to read it, right? You Alexis? do. Because it's, do. I, I'm going to tell you, I, I'm going to talk about what, what happened, but it's really about the characters and their stories. And you're not going to get that from my um, overview of the book. So anyway, Anna wants Roger to feel useful. Part five, the turn. 
What we know is that the robber was not caught and all the hostages were released. But how? (laughs) Jack, the younger officer, then realizes that none of the hostages during their interviews mentioned the real estate agent. The robber is posing as the dumb real estate agent, he decides. (laughs) House tricks. That is the bank robber. The real estate agent and the bank robber are one and the same. And she was under their nose the entire time. Jack confronts the real estate agent and her face goes white. (laughs) This is very cool because up until now, we just assumed the bank robber is a man. And in the book, they talk about this like only men do dumb stuff like this. Mm -hmm. But in reality, uh, this book is written so carefully that no gender is assigned. There's a lot of gender play in this book. Mm -hmm. And it's up to your own bias to decide Mm -hmm. what the gender is. And you're always wrong. Mm -hmm. So um, when we flash flash back to the hostage situation, the robber sits in the hallway um, at one point and thinks about her girls. We know now that she's the mom of the frog and the monkey. And while her terrible hostages order pizza from the police below. So the hostages are like, you're terrible at this. We'll help you. You need a demand. So we hungry. Let's demand pizza. So, so um, later they also request fireworks. But for now, they're asking for pizza. Every perp needs a demand. She looks at her fake gun and wonders while she's alone in the hallway and her hostages are ordering pizza. She wonders if this was a real gun, would I end it all right now? Mm -hmm. Behind her, a voice says, don't do anything silly. It's Zara. And don't do anything silly is the one thing Nadia also told her during one of her therapy sessions. Zara repeats that to the bank robber and is terrified. Zara's like, wait a second. Am I developing empathy? Disgusting. (laughs) Back in the hallway with the bank robber, Zara begins to panic. Was she developing empathy? She runs to the balcony. Why am I talking like this? (laughs) She She runs to the balcony. She runs to the balcony. (laughs) (laughs) Leaving the bank robber alone in the hallway. Leonard, the rabbit, joins Zara on the balcony and they quickly form an unlikely bond. (laughs) You got to read the book to get those details. In a large closet, as we said, three women share the stories of their life. Those women are Julia, Estelle and Anna. They decide in a moment we're going to help the bank robber escape. Yes. Yes. I love that idea. Let's do it. She really is trying her best. (laughs) They decide they will help her pretend she's a real estate agent because the real estate agent isn't there anyway. (laughs) But soon, because Estelle is smoking, the old lady, mm -hmm, that's right. They hear smoking and drinking in front of a pregnant woman. Smoking and drinking. (laughs) (laughs) But soon they hear uh, first Estelle coughs (coughs) and then they hear coughing from the ceiling. (laughs) And they all stop like, wait, what? where's that noise coming from? In the ceiling is the real estate agent. <laughs> Trying to see who was in the ceiling. Leonard like climbs up, gets stuck, comes crashing down to the floor and his rabbit head finally pops off. <laughs> You're bleeding, Leonard. Someone yells. The bag of stage blood he's been carrying because he might have to up this disruption, he thought. So he was prepared. 
The bag of stage blood has a puncture and eventually finds its way all across the floor. That's right, you guys. That blood the officers were tracking through, stage blood. It's not real. An officer enters the hallway with the pizza. It's Jim, the dad. Are you a police officer? She asked so quietly that Jim lost his train of thought. How do you... I don't think the police would send a real pizza delivery guy if you thought I was armed and dangerous. She smiled, more like her face actually cracking than cracking into a smile. No, no, well, yes, and and yes, I am a police officer. Jim nodded, holding the pizzas out. Thanks, she said, taking them with one hand as the pistol dangled in the other. Jim couldn't take his eyes off it. How are you doing he asked which he may not have done if she'd been wearing a mask i'm not having the best day she confessed is anyone in there hurt she shook her head in horror i'd never jim looked at her noting her trembling fingers and the bite marks on her lower lip he couldn't hear anyone crying inside the apartment there was no one shouting no one who sounded afraid at all i need you to put the pistol down for a little while he said the bank robber nodded apologetically can i give them the pieces first they're hungry It's been a long day for them, I... Jim nodded. She turned around and disappeared for a while, then came back without the boxes and without the pistol. From behind her, someone exclaimed, That isn't a Hawaiian! And someone else laughed, You don't know anything about Hawaiians! Laughed. Then came the sound of idle chatter between strangers who were no longer quite that. It's probably hard to say precisely what would be normal in a hostage drama, but this certainly wasn't it. Jim looked intently at the bank robber. Can I ask, how did you get caught up in all this? The bank robber, now unarmed, took such a deep breath that she doubled in size, then she became smaller than ever. I don't know where to start. Then Jim did something deeply unprofessional. He reached out his hand and wiped a tear from the bank robber's cheek. My wife had a joke she used to like. Uh, How do you eat an elephant? I don't know. A bit at a time, she smiled. My kids would have liked that. They have a terrible sense of humor. The robber will never see her children again if they catch her. And that is a pain too much to bear, he decides. So they won't catch her, he decides. Mm. The officers will not catch her. When Jim goes back down to the street, this is a hostage situation if you forgot, he arranges for the fireworks. And they are beautiful. All the hostages sit around and watch the fireworks with Estelle. (laughs) Canute would have loved them. Afterward, Estelle screams to the room, I had an affair once. Estelle is kind of drunk. (laughs) So everyone's like, okay, old lady, we got it. She then touches the bookcase and a book hits the floor and a key falls out. That's right, you guys. This is Estelle's place. She lives here. That's how she knows where everything is. (laughs) The key still fits the lock of the apartment that once belonged to her secret boo. That apartment is now vacant. Estelle gives the key to the bank robber. Okay. Now, this book is a package finished with a thoughtfully um, tied bow. And I won't ruin the bow for you. So that's the end. Oh, except for one thing. Nadia, the therapist, um, opens the letter for Zara, that letter that Zara has been carrying around with her for 10 years from the man who jumped. And inside of it are four words. Mm. It wasn't your fault. Good grief. 
the end. You want to take a break? Yeah, let's take a break. Okay, let's do it. the way the um, characters were handled. I didn't feel like there were too many because they weaved so well together. So it wasn't like, um, I mean, we've read other books like, we've read other murder, books. Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, where, where it's like just, some characters are negligible. Yeah, where it's just a whole lot of characters and just like characters for the sake of having characters. But I didn't feel no, like that. Uh, the murder club, the Thursday murder Thursday club. Thursday murder club. That's a that's a better one. Yep, just characters for characters' sake. Um, but I didn't feel like that with this one. I thought this was um, the stories were told uh, very well about each character and just how their stories intermingled and it you know kind of viewed each one and their anxiety and how their life was affected. So I do think it was um, a well-told story. I think I would recommend it because it was just so interesting and um, engaging. It was a little slow start for me, but um, just because I was trying to figure it out. And I do love that. And Kylie Reed did this in her book, I felt like, too, where she doesn't really reveal the race of the character and it's left to your own biases to decide who that is. And this was similarly done. Like, I just knew. I said, but they did say that was a man. They said it was a, a man. Yeah, this book isn't playing on race. It's playing on gender. Mm-hmm. And I thought for sure they said the bank robber was a I man. Was and I was sure. like, why did I assume it was a man? It's your own biases. It's your own biases. But that I just, and I had to go back and listen to it again because I just knew they said it was a man, but they didn't. They always referred to them as a bank robber. And I and I caught that early on that they referred to them as a bank robber. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. But again, I still assumed it was a man. I still made mm-hmm. the assumption it was a man. So I did enjoy the book. Uh, I would recommend it. It was um, it was a good storytelling. He's a good storyteller, I, I have yeah. to say. So how about you? Would you recommend the book? So just to tie up your recommendation, it was slow moving for you. You weren't completely in love with it, but you'd recommend it was fine. Yeah. It was just fine. So I really love this book. I felt like um, every character has their own background and um, the way the book ends, it kind of lingers in the good moments. Mm -hmm. So what I really like about this book, there are some dark points, of course. Yep. But it gives them to you and then it lingers on the quirk of it all and the um, good moments that people share. And by good, I mean like the kindness they share for each other. So to me, this is a book about kindness to strangers and what that can what impact that type of kindness can have on people's lives. Um, There's also a great quote in this book 
Nothing is easier for people who never do anything themselves than to criticize someone who actually makes an effort. Mm. And I feel like that can be applied in a lot of ways. So um, there are a few quotes in in there, especially the one about children living, um, parents living for their children or you know what I'm talking about? Yes, that was really good. So it's not that you want your um, children to grow up and live their dreams. You want them to grow up and live your dreams. And you want to vicariously experience them through those children. And I was like, Um, oh, oh, is they talking about me? Oh, oh no! Oh no! Everybody, I pushed her to to experience my dreams, and she's experiencing them. That's why I got yeah. issues. Oh no! Yeah, that's all parents say. Eh? Yeah, so, very cool. Um, great job, Frederick. And I am looking forward to adding the man named Uve mm-hmm. to our list. Um, um, type of storytelling where it's really about the characters you just linger in it, mm-hmm. and for that reason, it's also a great beat read. This is not a very action-driven novel. It is about the characters, and you can just get to know the characters, and that's enough. And I so. can agree. I would definitely. I don't agree with you many times on beach reads, but this one <laughs> definitely I can yeah. get behind as a beach read because it is. It is such an easy story. It's not murder and mayhem. It's just an easy story. And it, and in that sense, I, I I felt like it reminded me of Alexander um, McCall. Um, oh, number one ladies uh-huh. detective agency. Um, I'm not saying they write the same, but the way he told the stories about the characters, I appreciate it. It called to mind um, number one ladies detective agency. So I really enjoyed it as a just a really easy light read in that way yeah your mind can just go on vacation and spend a day in the life of these characters Mm -hmm. and that feels refreshing um there is some category i can't name because i can't think of it where this book and midnight library belongs where there there are books about self-harm and suicide yeah um that aren't about it right but it's supposed they they um inducing you feelings of like empathy for people going through um dark thoughts yeah and and um, they encourage you to be kind to everyone. Yeah, I, I did. as much as possible. Yeah, I caught that too. I um, yeah, I did definitely. I was like, oh no, we're getting ready to do another one of these books. I know, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't that at all. And that was um, and that was good. It was. It was mm-hmm. good. So yeah, I enjoyed it. What are we reading next week, Kari? James Bond Casino Royale. This is a graphic novel adaptation. So it's not the Ian Fleming novel, right? Or is it in co- with with pictures in it? What is this? Um, this one is actually by Van Jensen and uh, Dennis Calero. And um, yeah, they adapted it for the graphic novel. And where did you get yours? Because I have to buy it. I got it from the library. Oh, I love it. Okay. All right, cool. Yep, but that's it. So thanks for listening to Lit Society. We look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society. I'm going to bed. <laughs> <Proud> <laughs> to you. By Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why we absolutely, excuse me, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We do love you, but that's <laughs> not do. the phrase. So <laughs> if you've enjoyed what you heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes this month's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read, read something. something.